I'll just sit down. But if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is going to be Galatians uh, 4, 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? <clears throat> they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for, when I, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mason. And good morning, everyone. We are in the final stretch of our sermon series on our mission and vision statements. These are derived from the Great Commission, which instruct us to go and make disciples, to gather them into the church through baptism, and to teach them to obey. So we've already covered the, the going church and the gathering church, and for the final part, the teaching church, we are preaching through the book of Galatians to see how the apostles taught the church. But before we get into our, our text this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father God, I pray that you will teach us from your word this morning. May it accomplish in us all that you desire. Father, not what we want, but what you want. Not our will, but your will. So, Father, please lead us by your Spirit into all truth for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, imagine for a minute uh, a conversation that you've had with someone. Think back on maybe a time where you were trying to convince someone to do the right thing. You were trying to be persuasive. And so perhaps you're thinking the first thing that comes to mind is, is a conversation with an older child. You list out the reasons that they should do something. You give them sound logic. But you also appeal to their emotions. You assure them of your... You're thinking about even though it's hard. You're trying to persuade them to do the right thing even though it's hard. And so after listing all the logical reasons, you tell them about a time when you did it. You encourage them to follow your example. In our study of Galatians to this point, Paul has put forth sound, logical arguments. He's made a compelling case for justification by faith alone. He's brought Old Testament scripture to bear. He's refuted the false teachers who were saying that Christ is not sufficient for salvation. They were Judaizers, saying that you needed justification by faith in Christ plus circumcision and works of the law. 
Paul has been very direct with them. He accuses the Galatians of deserting the gospel twice. He's called them foolish. He said that they've been bewitched. Of the 13 New Testament books written by Paul, Galatians was the first. It omits what was to become his usual warm greeting. Instead, he jumps right into the issue at hand, that the Galatians need to hold to the truth of the gospel. But in our passage today, Paul makes an abrupt shift. Well, he continues telling them that they need to hold to the truth of the gospel, but his appeal has changed. No longer is Paul appealing to their logic alone. Paul, like you and me in important conversations that we just thought about, may start out appealing to the head, but end up also appealing to the heart. In the first part of verse 12, we will see Paul appeal to the Galatians to follow his example. Then in 12b through 15, we will see him appeal to their shared personal experience. In verses 16 to 18, Paul assures them that he wants the best for them. He appeals to his good motives in contrast to those of the false teachers. Then in verses 19 and 20, we will see an appeal of love. Paul has parent-like affection for them. In our passage, we'll answer the following questions. What did Paul ask the Galatians to do? What was the relationship like between Paul and the Galatians? Had it changed? What was the motivation of the false teachers toward the Galatians? What was Paul's motivation? How does this text apply to the life of the church today? And finally, what can we learn from our passage about how the apostles taught the church? The first thing that we'll see in our text is Paul's appeal to the Galatians to follow his example. Verse 12 starts out, brothers, I entreat you. See the shift in tone already. Instead of foolish Galatians, he calls them brothers. In fact, in verse 19, he'll call them my little children. Paul then entreats. It means he begs the Galatians to do something. This is the first imperative, the first command, the first call to action in the book of Galatians. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul has died to the law. He's exchanged his life under the law for a life under the dominion of Christ. He's abandoned pursuing works of the law in order to be saved. In chapter 2, Paul says, I have died to the law to be under him like he is, not like he was, not like he used to be under Judaism. Paul has, up to this point, appealed to their logic but now he entreats them to follow his example. This is something that we do all the time. I can remember when my daughter was trying to decide what to major in in college. I told her that she should major in accounting like her dad. (laughs) So I gave her logical reasons. 
I said, you know, accounting is the universal language of business, and it can be applied to any business that she might be involved with. She's an entrepreneur. If she wanted, she could start her own accounting business. We homeschooled, and she took a bookkeeping course in high school, which she really enjoyed. If she liked bookkeeping, maybe she would like accounting. Logical reasons. Besides, I said, you could be like me. You could follow my example. Well, accounting wasn't the best path for our creative, artistic, song-composing, poetry-writing daughter. I think the accounting major lasted maybe two weeks before she changed it to something more in keeping with her personality. So the point isn't the soundness of the advice I gave her, or lack of it, but it's how natural it is to appeal first to logic and then to our own example. It's a natural progression. Later in his life, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow my example. Now, that's sound advice for all of us from the Apostle Paul. So next, we'll see how Paul and how his appeal shared, um, how he appealed to shared personal experience. Last week, we ended in verse 11, uh, in which Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. It's Paul's fear that he may have ministered in vain that draws his attention back to the time when he first brought the gospel to the Galatians. In the last part of verse 12, he says, you did me no wrong. I think Paul is saying, it wasn't you, Galatians, that did me wrong. It was the Jews. I didn't call you foolish because you did something bad to me. I'm not angry because you did something to me when we were together. You did me no wrong. Let's take a quick trip with Paul down memory lane. We know quite a bit about his first missionary journey and of his time that he spent in Galatia. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13.2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Antioch church in modern-day Syria sends them off. Paul and Barnabas sail to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas is originally from. Then they sail north to Perga in verse 13. And on the, it's up to the highlands, to Galatia. Their first stop is in Antioch, Pisidia. Paul preaches in the synagogue. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city turns out to hear him. The Jews become jealous and revile Paul. Acts 13, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and here Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The Jews then drove Paul and Barnabas of Iconium, about 90 miles away, but still part of Galatia. They go into the synagogue, and a large number of people believe. They stay a long time in Iconium, but the unbelieving Jews stir up the people. Paul and Barnabas learn of a plot to stone them, so they flee to Lystra, still in Galatia. Acts 14.7 says, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Paul heals a lame man. The people think Barnabas and, and Paul are Zeus and Hermes, uh, which are Roman gods. Acts 14.19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But the disciples gather around Paul, and he gets up. And the next day, he and Barnabas head out to Derby, about 60 miles away, but still in Galatia. Paul and Barnabas make a number of disciples there. They begin their trip home. They go back through the Galatian cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch Pisidia to strengthen the disciples and appoint elders for them in every church. That's Paul's experience in Galatia that's known from the book of Acts. You did me no wrong, he says. Now, if you would turn back to Galatians chapter 4. Paul continues to appeal to their shared personal experience in verses 13 and 14. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So here Paul reminds the Galatians of the good relationships they enjoyed when he was with them. It was because of a bodily ailment that he first preached the gospel to them. So as we saw, Acts didn't talk about Paul's bodily ailment in Galatia. But most Bible commentators believe he's talking about his famous thorn in the flesh referenced in 2 Corinthians 12.7. What specifically was the physical problem that Paul suffered from? Bible commentators have debated that for years. The best guess, and it can be little more than that, is some kind of eye problem, perhaps hinted at in verse 15, for I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Later in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So why is he writing in large letters? Well, perhaps those are the only ones that he can see. But why is he even writing? I mean, he would have dictated his letters. Well, at the end of 2 Thessalonians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. 
So Paul would write something. Why was it a bodily ailment that caused Paul to first preach the gospel to the Galatians? Some have speculated that Paul didn't stay in the coastal area of Perga, but headed to the highlands of Galatia to escape malaria-infested areas. According to the CDC, severe cases of malaria can cause a number of neurological complications, including blindness. But again, this is speculation. We simply don't know what Paul's bodily ailment was that led him to evangelize in Galatia. What we do know is that whatever Paul's condition was, it was a trial to the Galatians. But they did not scorn or despise him because of it. In fact, far from rejecting Paul, he reminds them that they received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In other words, they received him as an angel, which means messenger, or even as the messenger. They received him as they would have received Christ Jesus himself. Verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? This means either that the Galatians were previously in a blessed state and now were not, or that they had previously pronounced blessings on Paul but now did not. So perhaps both are true, but most commentators say that it's the latter, as Paul expands on the nature of those blessings as he continues in verse 15. For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Again, we see a hint of Paul's bodily ailment. If the Galatians could have given him an eye transplant by giving him their own eyes, they would have done so. Paul is saying, in essence, do you remember those days? In spite of my condition, you received me like you received Jesus himself. We had such a great relationship. After all we've been through together, what happened? Next, Paul appeals to motives. He contrasts his motives with those of the false teachers. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So some commentators say it's likely that Paul is being accused by the false teachers of being the enemy. Here he's using this question to sum up the present situation between him and the Galatians. They once held him in honor, but now they regard him as the enemy. Has that ever happened to you? Have you invested in someone? You love them sacrificially. You have pure motives. You speak in love. But then when you tell them the truth, They regard you as the enemy. It takes a lot of maturity to say, thank you for having this difficult conversation with me. I'm going to be thinking and praying about what you said. Thank you for taking the risk to share this with me and talk with me about it. This may be way out of our comfort zone, yet God calls us to have the kind of close relationships with one another that we can both initiate and receive these difficult, loving conversations. Verse 17, they want to shut you out, 
that you may make much of them. The enthusiasm that the false teachers have for the Galatians is not for their good. They have ulterior motives. They're zealous to make converts, but it's to the injury of the Galatians. Paul is saying, in contrast to the sincere concern that I have for you, they want to exclude you from my influence. They want to shut you out from the freedom that the gospel brings. They want you to make much of them. They want you to admire how well they keep the law. They want to form an exclusive club of people who view themselves as righteous because of their works. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Our extended family has a group me thread for staying in touch. It's fun to hear from everyone, especially on special occasions like birthdays. Family members often say, happy birthday. I hope you feel celebrated today. I think in verse 18, Paul is saying, it's okay to be celebrated for a good purpose. It's okay to be courted when the intentions are honorable. What is it that fathers ask an eligible young man who wants to court their daughter? What are your intentions toward my daughter? Right? Some of you have been there. You've heard that. So we want to make sure the intentions are honorable. Paul made much of the Galatians when he was present with them, but as soon as his back is turned, the Galatians let someone else come in and court them with dishonorable intentions. In contrast to the false teacher's zeal for the Galatians, which is motivated by pride, Paul's concern for the Galatians is for God's glory and their good. Finally, Paul appeals to love. He loves them as a parent loves their child. We see this in verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So I have a question for the children here. How many of you kids have gotten in trouble with mom or dad and they told you that what you did was a bad thing. Raise that hand, your hand if that's ever happened to you. Okay, should, should be all the kids here, right? All right, put them down. All right, after you got in trouble, how many of you also had a parent say, mommy loves you or daddy loves you? Raise your hand. Okay, thank you. In verse 19, we see Paul's tenderness toward the Galatians. He's called them foolish and bewitched. He's had a hard conversation with them, but now he assures them of his love, just like many of you do with your children. Paul compares his burden as their spiritual father with a woman giving birth. So great is his desire to present them mature in Christ, he agonizes over them. As we saw in the book of Acts, Paul's love for them was demonstrated by self-sacrifice. Stoned and left for dead. It's easy to give lip service to love, but these were not idle words. Now with the false teachers in Galatia, 
Paul is experiencing those birth pains all over again. He wants them to remain true to the gospel. His anguish is like the anguish of a woman in childbirth. I think every one of us knows something of this. We have children or family or friends who don't know the Lord, so we pray for them. Some of you have prayed for years. And you talk with them, and you pray that others will also share the gospel with them. Some of you uh, know exactly what this means. You've felt the anguish that Paul talks about here. Then he says, until Christ is formed in you. Here the metaphor shifts. It's like the Galatians are the ones who are pregnant, like Christ is gestating inside of them. The Galatians have experienced the blessings of Abraham. They've seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted freedom in Christ. Now they want to seek righteousness by works of the law. Works of the law can never save them. What the law can do, and it does it very well, is show us our sinfulness. It shows us that we all stand guilty before a holy God, that we're under condemnation and there's nothing we can do about it. We are without God and without hope in the world. But God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He died on our behalf and was raised from the dead. And so God calls us to repentance and faith. We trust in the person and work of Christ for our salvation. By grace, through faith, we are justified. That means declared righteous by God. God exchanges our sin and gives us the righteousness of Christ. Verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. In verse 18, Paul says that he made much of the Galatians when he was with them. Now he expresses his desire to be with them again. If only he was there, maybe he could persuade them to remain true to the gospel. They would once again see his tenderness toward them. He doesn't want to rebuke them, but he loves them too much to see them destroyed by these false teachers. He longs to change his tone. Again, Paul appeals to his love for them. Then Paul says, for I am perplexed about you. The Galatians were no longer enslaved to sin. They received adoption. They were given the Holy Spirit. They were given an inheritance as sons and daughters of the king. But now they want to go back to being slaves again? Paul is perplexed. Our passage last week left off in verse 11 with Paul being afraid for them. This week, we end with Paul being perplexed about them. As we will see next week, that perplexity will lead back to rhetorical questions and logical arguments again. We began our time this morning 
by thinking back to a conversation in which you tried to persuade someone to do the right thing, you probably started with sound logic. You listed all the reasons they should do something, even though it was hard. But at some point, you also appealed to emotions. You assured them of your love and that you want what's best for them. Or perhaps you urged them to follow your example. This is exactly what Paul did in our text this morning. He appealed to their head already, and now he appeals to their heart. He appeals to example, to shared personal experience, to his motives, and to his love. Church. Think for a minute about just a few of the one another commands that we have in Scripture. We're to love one another. We're to have fellowship with one another. We're to show hospitality to one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to stir each other up to love and good works. We are to instruct, encourage, admonish, and exhort one another. Friends, that requires relationships with each other. That requires spending time together. And sometimes it means both initiating and receiving private, difficult conversations with each other. The whole book of Galatians is, in a way, a difficult conversation. Paul confronts the Galatians. He appeals to their logic and to Old Testament scripture. But as we saw in today's passage, he didn't stop there. He appeals to both their head and to their heart. And so let us encourage each other to do the right thing, even hard. Let us live our lives in such a way that we, like Paul can say, follow my example. Let us have made wonderful memories together so that we can appeal to shared personal experience where our sentences start with, remember when? Let us have difficult conversations out of pure motives where we are aware of our own brokenness and that we are speaking as one forgiven sinner to another. May our concern be for God's glory and their good, not to somehow make ourselves look spiritual. And let those conversations be infused with love, not lip service to love, but sacrificial love. The Galatians knew that Paul loved them because of his self-sacrifice on their behalf. What can we learn about how the apostles taught the church? Well, Paul taught the church by engaging the whole person. That means the, the, both the mind and the heart. When we teach, we need to get the passage right. But we also need to get the passage across. And that means knowing the audience and applying it to the life of the church. And it means that our preaching should appeal to the head without neglecting the heart. That's Paul's example for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, 
you told your disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So fill us with your joy today as we celebrate the good news of the gospel. As our heads understand our salvation by faith alone, let our hearts be filled with joy. Help us to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.